This is the Radio Tab Breakfast Show. Paul Sortel and Andrew Cordes with you. Time to talk tennis. Leo Schlink joins us on the line now. Leo, good morning. Good morning, Paul. How are you? Very well, thank you. The, uh, the announcement that's come through in the last few hours, Serena Williams has announced her retirement. She will end her professional career at the US Open. It includes 23 majors and prize money of nearly $95 million, Leo. But I think we all saw this coming eventually. Yeah, we did. And for all of that, um, and given the fact she turns 41 at the end of next month, it's still a bit of a shock to realise that she's actually you know, calling time on it. Um, Venus has yet to do it. She's a year older. But, yeah, Serena Williams, the... Uh, preeminent player uh, on the women's side um, basically for the past 20 years um, will bow out at the US Open and um, she's not retiring, she's evolving into the next phase. So uh, um, a nice turn of phrase there, yeah. It's sort of uh, like sifting through sort of Delphic pronouncements uh, trying to understand what Serena's up to, isn't it, uh, Leo? But yeah, she's evolving away from the game. Um, it's been the... very Gwyneth Paltrow type it of is, situation. Yes. And the countdown has begun, but uh, I think re- even reading between her lines, and it came out in a Vogue magazine article, uh, of all things, rather than sort of your conventional tennis article. But, uh, geez, 23 uh, Grand Slam tournaments. Uh, you would have seen a lot of them, Leo. I mean, clearly the player of this generation from your point of view? Yeah, I was lucky enough to be there for the first one, which dates all of us, uh, 1999 um, US Open. And to think that um, she won, um, unless she wins the US Open, what uh, is likely to be the last of her career, 2017 at the Australian Open. So you put that span together, 18 years and everything that happened in between and such a dominant player and also lost 10 Grand Slam finals and a lot of them since she came back as well uh, after pregnancy. But... I remember a most, uh, probably that dominant period she had between 2014, end of 2014 US Open, which she won, to 2017 Australian Open, which she won, and then she was pregnant. Um, but out of those 10 Grand Slams, she won six, made, lost two other finals, and made the semifinals of the two others. So she was incredibly dominant during that period, and uh, she was the measuring stick. And, um, you know, the toughest thing in tennis... Um, uh, on the women's side, obviously, is to come back to the sport um, after mm. giving birth. And Margaret Court was able to do it. Kim Kleisters, Yvonne Gulagong, is only only a select band that have done it. And Serena came close um, a couple of times. Um, but this week, it probably puts it into context. Um, she won her first match in um, uh, well over a year since the, uh, the French Open 2021. Um, so um, she is... And has been in decline for some time. Uh, she's barely played, and we hope that she can go out with a bang at the US Open. Leo, you made mention there she won her first Grand Slam title in 1999. It was the early 2000s where the Williams sisters combined with the biggest thing in world tennis, and they continually spoke that they would be out of the game by 25 or 26 because there were so many other things that they wanted to do away from tennis. But here we are still talking about them playing in their 40s. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, they made that vow, and yeah, their late 20s, 27, I think it was, they were going to be out of the sport. And uh, here we are still talking about them, in Serena's case, 13 years later, um, or even longer than that, because they made that prediction before 27, obviously. And um, they've just been incredible. And, you know, you, you read through her achievements, and when you factor in that Venus has won seven uh, Grand Slam singles titles as well, um, and one household uh Two sisters, 30 Grand Slam singles titles. Um, and Serena herself has won 39 major titles, including 
doubles and mixed uh, and those Olympic gold medals as well. Um, it's just been freakish what they've done coming out of Compton. And I know the movie King Richard, um, because of the Will Smith factor, is probably not captured a lot of people's imagination. But when you actually understand what that area is like and what the Williams family did to produce these two young women as tennis players and world champions, it's just phenomenal. Oh, it's absolutely astonishing when you think about it. As you say, two in the one family. Um, Venus came onto the scene first, and uh, I remember she was winning Grand Slam titles, and uh, Richard Williams was saying, oh, no, her younger sister is better, and everyone was going, really? Could that possibly be right? <laughs> what made her a better player than Venus? Um, I think principally the serve. Even though Venus, at a peak, uh, you know, she's a five-time Wimbledon champion, you don't do that without a great serve. But Serena's serve, at her peak, just set her apart from everybody else, and then... Um, she was such a blunt force with everything else she did. Um, and, you know, you'd have to say that a net game wasn't a strength for her comparative to everything else she did. But, mm. you know, her serve set up so many um, parts of her game, allowed her to absolutely dictate, and she did that. And she was such a competitor. That was the other thing. Her attitude was no matter where she was in a match and what had happened off the court with everything else that happened to her medically, once she got onto a court and in battle, she was just so imposing and you'd hear those primal roars and she really directed it at her opponent. It was totally personal, but it was totally competitive and um, and completely different player off court um, when in the mood. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to see that side of her at Wimbledon a couple of times down in the, um, the town and went just out with her husband and totally charming. You would not reckon it was the same person. And, um yeah, she was, um, and you hear people talk of her in those terms that are much closer to her than anyone I know. Um, but, um, yeah, there's uh, that side to her that is really seen because, um, you know, even in the press conferences, she was asked this year about what would be, um, you know, a, a fitting result or a satisfying result, and she just looked at the person who asked the question and said, well, what do you reckon? Mm. You know, she was she was there to win, and she lost in the first round to uh, Harmony Tan, and... Um, but that was the warrior mentality she brought to everything she did on the tennis court. Leo, we know she was always admired for her tennis abilities, but if she ever got criticised, it was usually about her lack of acknowledgement when she lost a tennis Correct. match. Correct. Yep. We say she's admired, but was she liked by her fellow players? I know Caroline Wozniacki and her are very close, but were there, were there a lot of friends around her there on, on the tennis circuit? Yeah, I think that once they got off court, um, whatever was said in a press room or... Whatever happened on the court, um, you know, for the large uh, majority of her opponents, that was the way she was. She was she was very amiable, and um, you know, I know that um, she, when she she sent a message to Ash Barty, for example, about you know, I want you back, uh, I want you to come back, um, and that, you know, that's probably not the mark of someone who is um, deeply unpopular. But um, yeah, that was probably the one thing that she never ever gave credit to other players. Um, Sometimes she did, um, but never, ever, sort of like in the big moments. And you don't have to look at the US Open where probably the stakes were always highest for her because it's a her home grand slam. And you look at those incidents over the years that, you know, really showed her in a poor light, um, you know, with um, Sam Stoza's match, even Osaka, the match against Kim Kleister's when she was left basically on probation for two years and, you know, a huge fine for the way she behaved in that match and, you know, threatening to shove a tennis ball down a, a lineswoman's throat. All of those things have to be factored into, you know, Serena Williams, the, the competitor and the persona. Uh, but I think in the locker room, she was surprisingly popular. 
Yeah, that seems to be the impression you get. I mean, there's not many uh, people who have publicly criticised uh, fellow players. It's uh, quite interesting. And uh, you talked about that Sam Stozer match, uh, Leo, uh, where the atmosphere, I think it was the 10th anniversary of 9-11, so the atmosphere was just electric, doesn't do it justice. I'll tell you what, I think it'll be pretty lively in this last tournament uh, at the US Open when she's playing as well, won't it? It sure will be, and all the way through now, um, where she's currently playing, in Canada, wherever else she plays on the way in, um, you know, she wants to get a decent preparation. She went to Wimbledon on the back of a doubles tournament. Um, and once she gets to Flushing Meadows this time, it's, they'll, they'll just be hanging off the rafters in there. Um, and it, it will be just a massive send off for her. Um, and you know, we, we saw Pete Sampras win his last tournament there. Um, and just go out and the sense of occasion they built into that once they knew that he was going this, this time they've got weeks. Um, months to uh, uh, to plan it. Let's hope she can give it a decent run because um, it would just be a fairy tale. So, Leo, uh, off court, has she been able to break barriers for for other young African American women coming through to play tennis? Do you think? I think she has. I think she certainly inspired that. You know, you look at um, Sloane Stevens, who's a major winner. Uh, Coco Goff, um, she's come through and done a fantastic job already and they talk about her in in revered tones and um that that'll be her legacy along with venus and um there'll be other players who will follow through and uh, and on from that and I, I hope she stays in the in the sport in some form um because she is such an icon uh, for women's sport and um and not not just women's sport but also you know the, the sport of tennis itself and it'll be a shame if she's lost to it um but you know she's um hinted that you know she wants to expand her family um so um you know the clock's ticking there for at, at 40 so um you know if, if that's the case uh, she's gonna have her hands full for a couple of years yet but beyond that I, I really hope that she's able to give a lot back to the sport as well because um you know she's she's done a phenomenal job for herself and not just to herself but others who have followed her but there's a big role for her to play going forward and just uh, moving away from uh, Serena, you'd have to say uh, leading into Wimbledon, uh, Wimbledon and uh, subsequent to Wimbledon has been as good a stretch of tennis as we've seen from Nick Kyrgios, uh, uh, Leo. I mean, is this a turning of the corner at 27? Absolutely. And it's, he, he just seems to come to terms with, you know, what he's capable of producing and, and that realisation that at 27, there's not a lot of time left, relatively speaking, but... I just think that um, the the move to Sydney, um, his inclusion in the uh, basketball group that he plays with, and the fact that you know he's this year he's produced his best tennis. And right now, if you're framing a market for the Newcomb Medal for the best Australian tennis player this year, if not for Ash Barty winning the Australian Open and farewelling the sport in such uh, you know magnificent style, uh, Nick Kyrgios would would be he'd be a, a short price favourite to win it. Um, you know, making the Wimbledon final, he's uh, won a title in Washington. I think he's made the semi-finals or, or better at his past six events. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been a huge year for him, um, and it's all about just I think taking some of the rubbish out of his game and saving energy and using it for things that matter as opposed to things that don't matter. Looks as though too having the, the new girlfriend that seems to have settled him down. And he's, as you said, twenty-seven. Maybe he's just growing up a little bit and uh, uh, realizing what's important to him in life. I think so, and you know, and, and also that admission and um, the reconciliation that he hit rock bottom mentally. Um, you know, he was in an area where he's talked about it, self harm, and he's bounced back from that. He's he's uh, whatever issues he had with people close to him, including his family. It appears as though that he's also reconciled those. So 
relatively speaking, is is at peace, and he's he's um, we know he's always loved playing doubles because that is you know the closest thing he's going to get to playing in a team sport, and he won another doubles title at the weekend. He's won with uh, Tanasi Kokonakis this year. He just appears to be enjoying himself, even though he's away from Australia right now. But he's able to bring people around him that you know can take some of that burden off him, and he seems to be really enjoying himself at the moment. And we're seeing the results on court. And uh, Leo, uh, just uh, I was to give you the other day. I was watching that uh, road race in the Commonwealth Games for the women in the cycling, and the Australians won. And the British competitor after. The event was quite critical of the way the Australians rode, saying they rode a boring race. Um, I think she intimated that they just wanted to keep the peloton together and then, uh, you know, have uh, put their gun rider there for the last uh, sprint home. Is, is there any credence to that sort of uh, criticism as to how you uh, ride a road race? And is there some convention as to how they should be ridden? Yeah, there's no, there's no convention. It, it was a passive race early, um, as opposed to the men's race, which was, you know, sort of basically on for young and old. I think the, in the men's race, they were averaging 49 kilometres an hour for, a, um, a, you know, significant part of the early stages at least. But the women's race developed into, um, basically a, a tactical affair, the sprint, um, home. And the Australians had the, the weight of numbers there with, um, Georgia Parker and, and Sarah Roy, who finished first and third. Um, but, you know, they, they just they just worked it out, and um, Australia has always done well at the Commonwealth Games um, in the road cycling um, and and the road race in particular. And um, even though it's a, it's a team, an individual wins the gold medal or the bronze medal in this case as well, it is in essence a team event. They work together, and it's the only way they can succeed. And you know, you see some brilliant riders um, out there, like Geraint Thomas, the Tour de France winner. He did everything he could to try and win the, uh, the the race for Wales. Mark Cavendish was riding for the Isle of Man. Um, they, they were both unsuccessful and they got beaten by Aaron Gate from New Zealand. He, he won four gold medals at the Commonwealth Games. Um, Georgia, um, Georgia she, she won three, uh, two on the track and this one. So a phenomenal performance by her. But yeah, a bit of sour grapes from the English there. Leo, we know you're, uh, you you love your, your racing and your international racing. News coming out of England that Harry Dunlop is going to give it away. Now, Harry was the trainer of Green Moon before he run the Melbourne Cup in 2012. Now, he's giving it away because he said he can't afford to stay in the in the sport. Yeah, the economics. Um, and that's a sad thing um, compared to Australian racing, Hong Kong racing, French racing. Um, it's a cliche, but, you know, they the English uh, race for ribbons apart from, you know, the, the big, big races. And it's a real shame because the horsemen that produce the horses, um, you know, it's just, it is fantastic product um, in terms of what, you know, the top level, the elite in what they produce. But it's clearly unsustainable for someone as good as Harry Dunlop, um, which is a real worry. And um, you look at some of the trainers who've shifted countries to make money and, you know, Richard Gibson's in Hong Kong, um, there have been some great trainers who have moved across the channel to train out of France, and that's all because of prize money. And you, you look at someone like a Charlie Appleby, he's got the backing of Godolphin, that's a different model altogether, and someone really successful like John Gosden, now with his son Tatey. Um, it's, it's, apart from those guys, it appears to be really tough. Uh, unless you're competing at the top level, winning that top-line prize money, um, it's, it's a battle. Well, John Gosden was here in Australia a couple of years ago for the Magic Million sales, Leo, and he said if he was a young bloke starting out again with his career, he'd move to Australia because he said the prize money here is phenomenal 
and the sport itself is more ingrained into the Australian psyche. He said that seems to have left the English. Well, you look at you know you look at the the, the people who have come down to Australia, um, people like David Eustace, for example, and a whole bunch of others who've come down over the years um, and have done exactly that, become involved, um, and um, there, there'll be more of them coming down as well. Um, Annabel Nisham, etc. You know, making a real fist of it in Australia, and if they were back home training at home, they would be like everybody else struggling unless they were in that real elite who have the best horses, the best backing and therefore the best opportunity. Um, but in terms of being a mid-table uh, trainer in England, um, they're not making a lot of money. And Leo, just to put it into some context, I mean, we just tend to take it for granted as Peter Volandis announces, you know, oh, Golden Eagle 10 million, Kosciuszko 2 million, something else up to 4 million. I mean, the big races in the UK, what is the sort of prize money pool? Well, I'm thinking about uh, Nature Strip, um, winning at Royal Ascot, I think the total prize pool for that, um, one of the, you know, the glamorous mm. prints in the world, I think it was the, the equivalent of around about a million dollars Australian. Mm. That's for the total prize pool. Um, now, that, that, that's a decent whack, but that's, that's an exception. Um, most of the time, you, you look at, you know, next, the, the, I saw the, the Windsor races the other day, it's barely anything. Um, mm. You know, when you factor in the travel costs and, you know, Windsor's, you know, just, uh, west of London, uh, people come down from Newmarket. Um, you know, that, that's a fair hike down and back. Um, and you know, the fuel's just as expensive um, in England as it is anywhere else. So, and the you know the labour costs and everything else that you factor into it. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say on general, uh, I'd have to get the figure um, average of an Australian Group One compared to um, one in England. But I'd, I'd, I'd say there's be a fair gap when you, mm. you know, and that's not even including races like the Everest, who are outside the pattern. So. Mm. Um, you know, that, that adds even more to the disparity. And in Sydney on a Saturday, you can race uh, for $150,000 for a benchmark 80 race, Leo, and there seems to be a million-dollar race in this country every every weekend now. Yeah, it's just it's incredible for um, a return uh, or opportunity for a return on investment for owners, and um, that's a great thing. And um, competition is, is good for Australian racing as much as some people bemoan it and, um, you know, New South Wales has just been leading that front and um, Racing Victoria is doing its best to counter it uh, or match it or rival it and, um, you know, you see the flow-on effect and um, if you're lucky enough to, to get a Group 1 horse and, uh, and actually win one, well, happy days. It's, um, it uh, pays for a lot of other horses and in, invariably it leads to reinvestment in the sport. And we've got an $11 million race day in January for Magic Millions on the Gold Coast, Leo. So just How good. Just puts it in perspective. Back to tennis one, just quick one. Uh, Novak Djokovic, any change to his ability to play the US Open? At the moment, no. Uh, fair bit of debate through the week. Um, sorry, his wife was having a crack at uh, a media outlet about, um, uh, about Novak and... Uh, um, basically, they were insinuating that he'd been selfish in his approach, and um, yeah, she didn't like it very much at all. So, the battle lines appear to be uh, growing deeper there, and there doesn't appear to be any change on behalf of the U.S. government. And while that's the, the case, um, Novak will be seeing it out at, um, until potentially the Australian Open uh, 2023. She's a formidable correspondent, Mrs. Djokovic, isn't she? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a bit prolific, isn't she? Oh yeah. She's, uh, um, don't know if I'd like to see her um, on the other side of the net. Um, might be more difficult than her husband. Yes. You wouldn't want to be home late for a few beers at the night out, Leo. I reckon Novak could tell a few of those tales too. <laughs> uh, always a pleasure, Leo. Good on you, mate. We'll catch up again next week.
Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Andrew. Leo Schlink there joining us to talk oh, a number of things, tennis, racing uh, and cycling.